0: Local voices, local conversations, NapaBroadcasting.com. Thanks for joining us here at NapaBroadcasting.com. In addition to all of our local elections, and we spent some time yesterday talking about the local measures, there are those 17 state propositions that are there on the ballot. Many of you have gone through them already. In fact, I've heard from a lot of people that they spent part of their rainy Sunday last week going through them and learning more about them. We're going to talk about a couple of them today, particularly those that relate to law enforcement and related issues. We're going to be talking to Napa County District Attorney Gary Lieberstein, who's joined us in studio today. But before we get to that, and there's certainly a lot to talk about, Gary himself has uh, made a big personal announcement this week, which I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about since uh, we have you here. Gary, first of all, thanks for coming in.
1: Well, it's always a pleasure, Jeff. And after we're done talking, hopefully I'll I'll get invited back again sometime for some reason. You, you invite <laughs> you have an open invitation, Thank
0: but you, you have uh, officially announced your retirement from the DA's office this week.
1: I have indeed uh I've been in the DA's office since 1985, so over 31 years or over half of my life, and I've been the elected district attorney for 18 years. Um just uh midway through my uh my fifth elected term and I, I will say at the outset and I know a lot of your a lot of your audience are also um college students who may not have met me or had well they they might have they grew up in Napa schools cuz I came and talked to their 8th grade but they may not have had a chance to to vote too often but I know you've got a lot of other folks and I would just say it's um it's an been such an incredible privilege and honor I know those words are overused but I it, it's true I feel like the luckiest guy in the world to have been entrusted with this position for 18 years and, uh, um, the timing just feels right now for myself and my family and our office is at the strongest it's ever been in the, you know, the entire time that I've been, uh, the district attorney. We've got just incredible group of men and women, uh, from the top to the bottom, um, who make me proud every day. And, uh, I, I've got a outstanding, uh, chief deputy district attorney her name is Allison Haley um, some folks may have been following the newspaper uh, i have given us my strongest recommendation to the board of supervisors that they they consider appointing her to fill the balance of my term and i believe next week she'll be interviewed uh, publicly by the board of supervisors but uh i can tell you her work ethic is off the charts her she's got an incredible moral compass of right and wrong and you know i've i've said it in other venues that uh the best legacy I could have is that my successor do as well or better than I did.
0: what are you going to miss most? do you think about the job
1: um, the people uh, both you know the people here locally um, you know there, there's there's kind of a energy in my office of, of um, incredible teamwork and camaraderie and you know it's exciting to see some of the younger lawyers, for example, just you know at the start of their careers and um, you know working with uh, many people in the county the you know the county department heads the board of supervisors it's uh you know we we live in a pretty incredible county where you know fiscally even when the economy was at its worst in two thousand eight uh you know nobody was laid off um you know we didn't have furloughs um you know the the everybody tightened their belts, but things persevered and then you know um the idea that I can have uh some say and be heard on issues of social justice and change, uh, whether it's on mental health or working with working with kids or on elder abuse or things and um, you know, I, I'm hoping to still uh have a voice in the community, um, uh, even, you know, once I'm in retirement, but I know it'll be different. And then, you know, my colleagues at the state level. Um, there's only you know, I have fifty seven colleagues and you know, nobody can know what it's like to do this job unless you're actually Doing the job and and it's um, you know it's twenty four seven so it's like you know middle of the night you're thinking about some case that's going on or or you know there there's there's something happening um, you know there's even when you're on vacation it's you know we just had a a, a beautiful trip uh, my wife and I with some friends uh, over to Europe and you know I told my office and my assistants before I left that I'd be you know off the grid and you know then I had internet every day and I you know, I checked my email every day, and there were some things that I responded to, and you know, when they got back to me and said, "Hey, you're on vacation," and the, you, you said you weren't going to do this, I said, "Well, I lied." And, <laughs> you're, you know, you're
0: never, you're never really off the grid. No,
1: you're you're not, and and so I'm, you know, it's bittersweet. Um, it's it's just been it's been amazing. Um, you know, I'm excited to see what's out there. I think you and I were talking before off the air and I said, you know, I've kind of a different definition for retire, for retiring. It's kind of like putting on a new set of tires and seeing where they take you. And, you know, other than a trip to the South Pacific, my first month of retirement in January, I, I, I honestly don't know where it's going, but I, I fully expect to remain engaged. And mm-hmm. I, I'm too young and too energetic. Right, you're
0: retired from the office and and from the day to day. You're not <laughs> retiring from life. Here. No, not from life, I mean, and not
1: from not from working. And um, you know, I, I put most of my career into helping helping victims through difficult situations. So I'm considering possibly doing some plaintiffs personal injury, which I, I could still be helping victims in crisis. I had a travel agent license for eight years, so I'm I'm probably going to be expanding on that. And then, you know, I. I don't know what what it's gonna be but it's um you know it's it's time for a time for a new chapter in life and uh but as i've told people in my office i'm not I'm not gone for another two and a half months and i i i still have a lot of uh a lot of energy in the tank so i'll be uh you know i'll be we're gonna talk about some things that i i think are critical coming up in the election but uh um yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be different.
0: As you look back on all those years, I mean, are there, there, what are are some of the highlights that really stick with you? Uh,
1: I mean, some of the, some of the accomplishments that I was able to have a, have a part in. um, You know, my parents taught me at a very young age to um, leave life uh, in a better place than when you got there. And yeah, you know, I'm hoping I left the office and the community a better place, but you know, areas around elder abuse, um uh gang and youth violence, if you remember when I first took I office in 1998, 97, there were a lot of kids shooting at each other and doesn't mean we don't still have issues out there, but a lot of people got together and one of the you know, really um highs of the job for me was the fact that you know, when I saw something that I thought needed attention or change and if I invited people to my office they actually came and you know I convened a group of of leaders around uh, youth violence and gang violence and we started the gang violence prevention council uh, back in 1999 Uh, we tried to get a state grant at first and we we failed because they didn't believe Napa County really had a gang problem and uh, we decided to do everything we could without the grant, and I started a gang unit in my office with a full-time investigator and prosecutor, and we convened these bi-monthly meetings, and three years later, you know, we kept track of everything. We went back to the state and said, uh, okay, we've done everything we can. Now we need to do more, and we got the grant, and we continue, even under realignment, to have state funding to help us in that area. Um, You know, four years later, I had some people saying, "What about what about elder abuse?" You know, we don't think that uh, everyone's paying enough attention, and so we kind of applied the same formula, and I, I was able to call in all the stakeholders around uh, elder abuse and dependent adult abuse in the community. We developed a countywide protocol for reporting, investigating, and prosecuting elder abuse, and we continue to meet on a bi-monthly basis uh, uh, with the elder abuse council. Um, an offshoot of that was the caregiver initiative, which um, we call Betty's Law, and I was uh, very uh, proud to have worked alongside Betty and others to develop that. We're still the only county in the state that requires uh, background checks for in-home caregivers and and actually a licensing process. So um, that's that's been exciting. Um, you know, the work I've done most of my career uh, working with victims of crime and. To that end, I chaired my state group for uh, seven years on victim rights, and and also uh, co-chaired on the national DA's Association of Victim Rights Committee. Um, you know, as far as career accomplishments, uh, in 2009 2010, I was entrusted by my state colleagues to be the president of the California District Attorneys Association. So, um, which you know will always be one of my, you know. Biggest accomplishments uh, in terms of just the amount of trust that was put in me to actually be in Sacramento, you know, at a meeting with the with then Governor Schwarzenegger and and represent you know twenty five hundred prosecutors across the state and elected DAs across the state, um, and you know there's a lot of things that happen at the state level that affect locals. So you know my work with the state association, the national association has been it's been great and. Even hosted my state group in Napa uh, four times and the national group once. Mm. So, I, I you know turns out if you can throw a good party, everybody wants to come yeah, to Napa. Yeah, and if you can yeah. throw a good party, people people. Uh, yeah, I, I mean the reality is I know how hard people work in my business, so I was thrilled to be able to uh, really um, introduce them to you know what our county has to offer. So it, it's I mean there's a lot of great memories. I've you know been through five. Five elections, three contested, and, and uh, you know, it takes takes a little something out of you too, but the fact that...
0: The uncontested ones are always more fun, right?
1: They, they are, they are, <laughs> but the fact that at the end of the day, um, you know, the only two times my my name was ever on the November ballot, my opponents had dropped out months before, and um, you know, the, the public's had this uh, confidence in, in my leadership, and, and it's something that I'll always cherish.
0: Well, you're there, as you say, for, for another two months, and uh, certainly there's still lots of issues that, that, as you say, you care about. Some of them uh, related to things that are on our ballot, which uh, people are working their way through the pages and pages of the new ballot. Two of them relate to the death penalty, and I know you wanted to talk about both of those, Prop 62 and Prop 66. Um, talk a little bit about what they are and, and your thoughts about them.
1: Sure. We can we can start at that point and um Prop 62 is, uh, in short, is is basically abolish the death penalty and replace it with life without parole. So that would be immediately commuting the sentences of everybody on death row, which is, I don't have the exact number now, but I know the last one I saw was somewhere in the range of uh, 760 or 770 um you know there are many people and I, I agree that our death penalty is is broken in california and so some people say it'll never be fixed and therefore you should just abolish it's you know it's too expensive there there are concerns about uh innocent people being executed and i can tell you that at least in california there's no documented cases of somebody who was innocent uh, uh being executed um prop 66 in short is to reform the death penalty um, you know, one of the problems, one of the things that, uh, uh, why the system is broken is because it often takes upwards of 10 years for a death row inmate to even get counsel appointed for appeal. And the average length of appeal is in the decades. And then in California, for a number of reasons, some political, some, uh, because of court cases, um, you know, since 1973, since the death penalty was reinitiated, uh, I believe we've had 13 executions, and we've had probably somewhere in the number of uh, 80 or more inmates on death row die of natural causes, drug overdoses, right. things like that. Um, so, But let's start at the, at the baseline. This is a very personal and very moral and ethical issue for a lot of people. Um, I don't think it should be a financial issue. I know that's something that that Prop 62 proponents throw out, and they say, you know, we spend too much money, but... It's also very expensive to keep somebody uh, on uh, life without parole. And the other part of it is, um, well, it's twofold. Appeals are going to happen either way. Uh, One thing we have right now is the death penalty is not supposed to be a plea negotiation tool. But even though it hasn't been carried out for a long time in California, there are still people who are facing it who fear it. And... uh, some of those people come forward as we had in the case of Matthew Coppel who I will tell you deserved to die for what he did but at the same time you know we agreed on a plea that was brought to us by the defense which was life without the possibility of parole with all uh, waiver of all appeals uh, waiver of any chance to apply to the governor for clemency or pardon and with the with the assent of, of both of the families of, of Leslie and Mazzara and uh, Adrian and Sonia and moving forward that way. But had that not happened, um, he was, in my opinion, of the 2 or 3% of the worst of the worst cases in the state that we would have had to seek what would have been the maximum penalty. And if life without parole was the maximum penalty, there would have been a trial because there's no way I would have agreed to a plea that would have ever given him a chance to parole. And that's the point I want to make is that People think that prosecutors maybe are overzealous or are seeking the maximum penalty at all costs. And the reality is we only seek the death penalty in 2 to 3% of all death-eligible cases across the state. I mean, you're talking about uh, people who kill police officers. You're talking about, you know, very, very uh, um, inc- incredibly gruesome murders, multiple murders, um, you know, where they're involving sexual assault, things like that, where most people who look at it would say, I don't know what the maximum penalty is, but whatever it is, this person deserves it. Now, you know, we could spend the rest of the time on air and and days debating about the morality and the ethics. And that's a very personal decision. But something that's always intrigued me is that some of the people who are the most ardent uh, proponents of death are also the strongest pro-lifers, when it comes to uh, to abortion, and those who are the strongest pro-choice are also some of the strongest against the death penalty. So I, I, I've never really been able to to philosophically reconcile that. But the so on the reform side on Prop 66, what that would do would be to create a larger pool of of counsel that so that the appeals could be taken much sooner. Um, also, death penalty appeals go directly to the state Supreme Court. Um, Prop 66 would have the appellate courts involved in doing the initial reviews and appeals. From a Napa County standpoint, we don't have anyone on death row that was sent there by, by uh, for a crime committed in Napa County. We've had two cases by change of venue because of publicity in other counties, one in Yolo County, one in Placer County, that over the past two decades resulted in death verdicts in California. Um one was a man who opened fire on a on a schoolyard, killed five students and a teacher. Um that was in Yolo County. The other one, in Placer County, was a man who brutally murdered two children, um, was in the process of sexually assaulting their mother and was gonna kill her and she escaped. And um it was all pre planned and it was you know, Napa juries did did agree on that. But I I don't think it's a financial uh savings one way or the other. Um, people ask what happens if they both pass? Mm-hmm. Um, whichever one gets more votes becomes law. So there and there are people I've heard who feel like you know it, it's broken, so if you can't fix it, get rid of it. And there are people who will probably vote for both because they're going to say, "Okay, let's fix it, but if that doesn't work, let's get rid of it." Um you know, I don't know how it's going to it's going to turn out. Um Again, it's not going to have a, a major uh, impact on on Napa County. I mean, in, in my 18 years as DA, I've only had to seriously consider it um, in the couple cases, one. And then, you know, most recently a case we can't talk much about because right. there's a gag order, but we've charged mom and, and her boyfriend with, with killing her three-year-old daughter. And, and that's a case in which we have made the decision not to not to seek death and and we don't have time to go on the reasons but it's it's one of the 97 to 98% of the cases where life without parole will be will be uh, sufficient accountability but i you know i do believe in vic- in accountability for offenders i believe in victims rights and that you know, kind of might lead us into Prop 57, because those are some of my concerns around Prop 57, if mm. you, if we want to segue,
0: Right. Talk a little bit about
1: that. Sure. So Prop 57 is the governor's initiative on, on parole reform. This initially started, and it was very controversial um, how it was amended, but it started as a single initiative to repeal Proposition 21, which was the initiative that gave the prosecutor's authority to charge a juvenile as an adult in, in limited situations of very serious and violent crimes. And um, there was a mechanism built in that said uh, we can, if if a court doesn't feel we've properly charged it, they can send it back to juvenile court. Uh, but the idea was you have some very egregious premeditated murder, whether it's a police officer, whether it's a gang killing, and someone's 17 or, or you know maybe they're turning 18 in a couple months, and there's really no likelihood the juvenile system is going to be able to rehabilitate them uh both from an actual standpoint as well as from an accountability standpoint because the maximum a juvenile can be held is to age 25 and these days it's really more like 21 or 23 um the 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 juvenile um uh, state facilities are 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 pretty empty right now Um, So that's where it started, and the very last possible day, the governor amended it to add in all this parole reform that um, really significantly changed the shape of the initiative, and district attorneys in the state actually sued the governor, and a superior court judge in Sacramento found that the governor bypassed the 30-day period for public scrutiny, and and initially enjoined him from collecting signatures, and then the state Supreme Court overruled that decision. And the governor spent, I believe, about $5 million qualifying the initiative. Um, my concerns about the initiative, and I want to preface this by saying, I think the governor's done an excellent job in a lot of areas, certainly fiscally. Um, I think he's a very moral and ethical man, and I understand that his premise is that everyone deserves a second chance. Um, but this also bypasses victim rights. It bypasses victim accountability. And the bottom line premise is that they uh, it's being sold as only applying to non-violent offenders. But the definition of what a violent offender is is very different in the legal code versus what we would all think of as a violent or, or very serious offender, because it includes all serious offenders. There's only 23 enumerated offenses for violent offenses, and they're The worst, the worst, you know, murder, rape, um, um, you know, residential burglary of a residence. I mean, a lot of the most serious things you can think of. Um, There are hundreds of serious felonies that this will apply to. And what it says, and one of those is human trafficking. So, what it says is let's say you have someone who's trafficking and they've got 10 victims. They get an, an initial sentence, the basic sentence for the first victim, it could be three years. But then there's enhancements, they've got prior convictions, maybe they have a strike, a prior serious or violent felony, and they have a 14-year sentence. And they should be serving at least seven years of that in some situations, more, 85% of it. What this initiative will say is that once they've served that initial three years, they're eligible for parole. Um, and the way that decisions can be carried out is very is of great concern because the governor is not happy with prosecutors. Uh, 52 of the 58 DAs are publicly opposing, and and many law enforcement groups now are, the State Chiefs Association, um, a lot of victims groups. And I have an interview the governor gave with the East Bay Times uh, on October 9th, and what he said uh, in regard to the initiative, he said, the system we now have is complex. District attorneys have a menu of possible charges to choose from that's the size of a phone book. Our district attorneys have unfettered, unreviewable discretion. That's what they have. You can't go to court and say, I don't want the DA to charge this or that crime. The DA can charge whatever the hell he wants. And with all deference to the governor, um, that's ignoring uh, courts and judges who have an absolute right to tell us we, we didn't charge properly or we didn't have sufficient evidence. Uh, we have an absolute ethical duty to only charge that which we believe we can prove beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. And, you know, juries make decisions as well. And so what the governor said, and I'm quoting, if we shift power back to our parole boards, we'll have a professional group of people privately evaluating when to release our prisoners. So what they're talking about is people the governor appoints in the prison system without likely input at all from prosecutors, not like our current parole system where at least you have a hearing. Mm -hmm. Um, They may entertain letters from victims but they're going to decide when somebody should be paroled. And you know the way the governor lays that out is he, he basically says, our prisons right now are full of gangs that are very influential. They can break your leg or kill you if you don't do what they want. It's very hard to motivate someone with a fixed sentence to turn their life around in that sort of environment. Proposition 57 gives people hope. It says, if you shape up, you'll be released. It becomes in your best interest to take charge of your life and obey the rules. Now, we're talking about the rules in prison, okay? Not the rules of uh, of public society. public free society. And I can tell you, you know, um, spousal abuse is a serious but not violent crime. Child abuse, you know, residential burglary when someone's not home as if that's different. You know, you come home and someone's in your house and that's not just as dangerous. Um, things like conspiracy to kill a police officer, that's serious but not violent rape of an unconscious person what what we just saw bill and the reluct- the governor reluctantly sign making that a prison felony that's a serious but not violent offense so that person from stanford he could be getting out even sooner uh, under this measure and you know so my my concern is it bypasses victim accountability and victim you know victim rights it also and I think the governor has publicly stated he wants to get around the victims' bill of rights, Marcy's law, and he wants to get around three strikes because three strikes is an enhancement. Now we have a situation right now, and this is the biggest issue I think facing facing public safety in the future. You know, we had realignment happen five or six years ago, and that was based on prison overcrowding on a three-judge panel saying we had 170,000 in prison, we had to reduce to 115,000. What realignment did is it shifted a number of what they called non-serious, non-violent. So remember, it had the non-violent, but it it also took the serious out. And it said all these people who were eligible for prison, they don't go to prison anymore. They do theoretically the same time locally. But our local jails don't have capacity for that. I mean, our local jail right now with a capacity of 262 people, two-thirds of that are people who are facing serious or violent charges and haven't been convicted yet, but you can't let them out because of safety issues. We have about maybe 12 people on average who are doing time on misdemeanors. Uh, Realignment said we can't send a drug dealer to prison because that's that's not a serious or violent crime. So with enhancements in some parts of the state, you have people getting 20, 30-year sentences Napa County, the largest, I think, was 10 years. And they're theoretically supposed to do that at least half of that time in a local jail. Well, because of capacity issues, you know, in Los Angeles County, you know, a 30-day sentence is basically about three minutes. You know, a year might be <laughs> might be 30 days because they don't have room because of, you know, our local jails are becoming mini prisons. The people in the local jails now have many of whom have done prison time. And if you talk to Leonard Varey, our jail director, he'll tell you that you know threats are way up on correctional officers. That th- It's a very different population. Then on top of that, we had Prop 47, just I think two years ago, approved by the voters, which made all theft under $950 a misdemeanor. Um, it also made all drug possession pretty much a misdemeanor, um, with the exception if we can prove it's possessed for sale. So someone could have a pound of heroin and if we can't, don't have other elements that they're selling it, that's a misdemeanor, which now means they do absolutely zero time. And we've got our prison population down to 115,000. We're already seeing um, property crimes, car break-ins, how you know different types times of property crime. It's increasing 10-15% across the state, and we're seeing things. You know, you used to talk about the Walmart burglaries and stuff. Right. Well, you know, people know what nine hundred fifty dollars is, so they're wheeling out cartloads to their car, and if they're caught, they're sight released because they're not going to be arrested because there's no room for them; it's a misdemeanor, and you know, a large number of those people never come back to to answer. So it's driving up consumer costs, and I just fear that this is going too far at a time when when you know when we're already changing the system so radically, and I, I just think it's been you know, poorly drafted, and the final comment, I'll say, with the governor, and, and again, I, I have incredible respect for the people, you know, over 2,500 prosecutors across this state, the judges across this state, people who do jury duty, and, you know, the governor basically says, uh, and I'm quoting, district attorneys don't like, don't like using judgment. They want the process to be automatic, like a machine. You put in a quarter and pop out a sentence. And, and I I can't tell you how insulting that is to, to some incredibly hardworking people across the state who are some of the most ethical people I know who agonize over decisions as I have over the years. And, you know, when we talk about case wins or anything like that, I mean, so many of these cases, there are no winners or losers. You know, mm-hmm. you have someone that kills their spouse and they have young children, you know, mom's mom's gone dad's in prison for life. And, you know, when I was talking earlier about following rules in prison, do you know who some of your your, your best behaved inmates are in prison? They're your spousal abusers and particularly your spousal murderers because they took care of their problem. You know, that that doesn't face them in in prison. They they don't get involved in gangs. They don't break the rules because a lot of them, that was their only crime or, or crimes in their background. And, you know, I just saw that in spades with Jerry Allen, which is another way of saying I've been here too long because (laughs) I went to his lifer hearing earlier this year and I was the trial attorney back in 1996. And his daughter, who was, you know, under 10 at the time that her mom was killed, was begging the parole board not to let him out. And he was a model prisoner because he committed his crime when he was 52. He had no prior record. He just, you know, couldn't get over the fact that his wife was uh, able to move on with her life without him. And, uh, no rules violation, and the board gave him a date his first time. Now, in that case, the governor actually overruled it, so we'll come back in 18 months and do it all over again. Um, but my point is just the ability to follow rules or not in prison should not be the guideline, or or if you take a few classes, that should should vitiate judges' decisions, juries' decisions, victims' impact, and I, I just think Prop 57 is, is wrong for us, so... Um, that one's I, I I urge a very strong no on. Um, the only other one that's you know kind of specific, it specifically involves criminal justice is uh, Prop sixty three. Um, I think that's Gavin Newsom's initiative and sixty four. Sixty four. I'm sorry. 64. I'm sorry. Excuse me. And sixty four, which,
0: which there is huge amount of polling
1: on, which is going
0: to pass i yeah. mean the, and it's
1: a yeah. common sense yeah. it, it it's involved background checks for people who purchase ammunition and as we know you know unloaded oh, that's
0: a different okay uh, that that's 63 okay yeah you we're right. talking about 60 right. that's right. why
1: yeah. I, th- I thought i had that yeah, yeah. 64 is marijuana and we could right. talk about that for a minute too but 63 uh, basically requires background checks for people who buy ammunition and you know guns that aren't loaded don't hurt people I mean, they scare people, but they don't hurt them. Um, I think that one's common sense. 64. I'm gonna, you know, and you're right. It probably will pass, and I'm just gonna say that um, I I think it's wrong, and and I don't not. It's not a moral ethical thing. The problem is the way it the way it's drafted. Is
0: it? The, I was gonna say, is it the issue or is it the proposition itself?
1: Well, it's it's a combination of things, Jeff. It's it's a concern about uh, youth having access, despite what they say. It's a concern right now because marijuana is still a classified federal drug. And the reason that's that's important here is what it means is that if people go to, to a, a store to buy their marijuana, buy their candy, whatever, um, they can't use a credit card because those are insured by the federal banks and they can't take credit cards for drugs that are illegal. So it means it's a cash business, which in turn attracts some un. Some less than savory people when you've got cash and drugs in the same place, and that's a they, concern. They
0: have been working through that in Colorado, though. I mean,
1: they're... well, that they've they've worked tried to work through a lot of things in Colorado. The two biggest issues they haven't worked through that well. Um, one is that there's no agreed standard for what under the influence of marijuana is for driving, and you know, I I gotta just put it out there because there's you know there's a younger generation, there's an older generation. You know, I was in college in the '70s. And we have this image of Cheech and Chong and you know, somebody driving five miles an hour with the munchies. The marijuana today, the THC content is so powerful that, that you know, a single hit can give someone a, a, a very strong high and yet there's no scientific standard for what under the influences. That's one. The other are the edibles. And this is something they're having terrible problems in Colorado with because, again, you don't really know what's in your candy bar and somebody takes one bite and they don't feel the effects so they go ahead and eat the whole candy bar and they're peeling them off the walls their hospitalization rates are up very high and i i'm just concerned that you know i don't mean to be uh cavalier but but that this isn't totally baked and and the reality is marijuana's already pretty much legal i mean it's been an infraction for years which means a 100 dollar fine if you're even cited for less than an ounce and i can tell you You know, police generally don't go around citing people, certainly not in our county. uh, Well, but
0: there's the medical issue, too. I mean, we have. uh,
1: Well, and that's the other side of it. So I'm just saying straight possession without the medical issue. Then if you overlay medicinal marijuana and, and cooperatives and stuff, we don't prosecute anybody who is legitimately running a cooperative, has patients. The only time we've had prosecutions at all is when it's very clear that they're their paperwork a isn't in order, and b it you know it looks like a cash business that's for profit, and that's not what medical marijuana says but we've we've never prosecuted people using for glaucoma for cancer, and I will tell you probably ninety plus percent of people who get medical cards and anybody can get it. you and I can get it. I mean we both have stressful jobs, stressful <laughs> lives um but you know even with a medical card it's not a doctor's prescription it's a recommendation and you never get a dosage. It's kind of like use whatever you want until you feel better. And but but that's already all legal. So you know, then I guess the only thing people say, well, let's take the profit out of it and we'll get we'll collect all this money um from uh taxes and we'll drive the cartels out. And all I can tell you is that uh, I don't think the cartels are just going to lay down and disappear. I mean, I think they're going to be involved in it on the legitimate side, and I also think they're going to ramp up their their um manufacture and trafficking on on much more serious drugs so I you know I I mean I've been uh, in public service a long time I've been in law enforcement a long time and and I agree with you it's going to pass and I just think we're going to have some some serious uh, concerns ahead of us on it
0: Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about how you think law enforcement will change in approaching it if 64 does pass
1: well, again, I I don't think there's that big a change. I, I mean, the the you know there's still going to be regulatory aspects to yeah. it. It's it's you know it may well go the route. It's going to have its own state regulatory agency, so it'll be more similar to ab to to ABC Alcohol right. Beverage Control, which is which is a state agency. So you know local law enforcement may work with ABC on, on cases, but ABC is the one that actually develops the case and then sends it to the local prosecutor if it's there and and there's not going to be a whole lot to prosecute i I mean it's it's as i said we're already not prosecuting people for lighting up a joint i mean i you know i got to tell you there's a little personal thing too is i you know i don't know about other people i don't particularly care for the smell um you know edible you know eat away i guess but hopefully don't hurt yourself but but you know it says you can't smoke in public but we already know you go to bottle rock or something and you know it's it's all around you and i think it just emboldens people even more and it's um you know it is a health concern for those of us who who don't want to inhale it and you know it took decades to to regulate smoking in public and you know for a long time smokers thought that, that was their god given right to do it wherever they wanted and now that's all been peeled back because we saw that there were health concerns and people who didn't want to inhale it shouldn't have to. So I'm, you know, I'm concerned about public consumption. But from a law enforcement standpoint, again, it's not a, it's not a huge focus right now anyway. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, we'll be focusing still on other illegal drugs that, that are still, you know, I mean, cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine still remains a huge problem. Um, so I, I don't think you're going to see a, a big impact on law enforcement to what degree do you think those other
0: things the heroin which you know we keep reading about what a huge problem it is in a place like new hampshire for
1: example but to what degree are those things problems here in napa county oh, methamphetamine is a huge is problem huge. i mean methamphetamine is is you know i hate to say the people's choice because you know but it's it's pretty easy to obtain um it can be some people manufacture which can be of course uh, a safety concern as well as a health concern when they have children around. I mean, we have a—it's um, called Drug Endangered Children Task Force because you know when when uh, drugs are found in a house and there's kids that have access. A lot of times there's meth just laying around the house, and you've got a two-year-old, and and then you've got the things. You know, I'll, I'll tell you what I think I've told you before is is seventy to eighty percent of all the cases that we handle from every level. Um, and this is kind of across, not just you know our office. This is this is common across the state and nation. Um, have some background with alcohol or drug use or abuse. I mean, it's not just the thing. It's not just people who steal because they want to support their drug or alcohol habits, but it's the things that they do when they're drunk or high that they wouldn't do clean and sober. And and so you know that's another concern I have certainly of legitimizing more drugs and drug use that you make it. Easier, less risk, and and it not only becomes health problems, but it's safety problems. And we see it over and over with, you know, spousal abusers who, you know, can be very charming when they're when they're clean and sober. But when they've been drinking or using drugs, they they get very wild. You know, methamphetamine is a is a terrible drug in terms of not just the effect on the human body, but what it does to um, your your brain and how you you know you see things that don't exist and you know, I, I tell kids all the time. I talk to eighth graders across the county that you know it's, it's again, it's the things people do uh, high or drunk that they wouldn't do clean and sober, and the decisions they make, and they build. You know, they have less ability to perceive dangers around them, or protect themselves or the people they care about. So um, that will continue to be a major concern. And you know, yes, alcohol is legal, and we all know in certainly you know Napa County. We have the wine industry, although most of the DUIs we see are not because people were wine-tasting too much. It's because, you know, maybe they were wine-tasting during the day, but at night then they have a bottle of wine, they have a, a cocktail before, they have a cocktail after, and, you know, then they get in a car. It's not because we have a wine industry. And, um, in fact, I think more than half of the people we see are, are actually local. You know, they're not tourists, Um so we're just legitimizing another whole area um where we already know we've got serious uh public health concerns with with illegal drug use let alone legal drug use and alcohol use so it you know in a perfect world i would say you know our younger generation solves alcohol and drug abuse and and uh you know we put people like me out of business but unfortunately the only way I'm going out of business is because I'm retiring, <laughs> <They're> retiring. But, <laughs> but there will be somebody else to replace <laughs> me very quickly and, and and someone to replace them after that. And um, So, I, you know, we, we just do our best to hopefully stay safe and, you know, certainly maintain our quality of life, but... You know, law enforcement will still have their hands full with other illegal There's no shortage of
0: business. No shortage of business. (laughs) Napa County District Attorney Gary Lieberstein, I thank you so much for coming in and and sharing your thoughts about these propositions and also uh, about your uh, impending retirement. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. It's always a
1: privilege and a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to NapaBroadcasting.com.